There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. How's it going? Good. I'm just keeping my volume up. <laughs> I'm fine. Okay. So we're excited for this episode. Do we want to hit some patrons? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. So this week we had Ashley, Stacy, Jennifer, and Heather. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. If you want to give us a Patreon co- contribution, you can hit us up there too. Yeah. There's like tons of bonus content. At, at this point, there's like a hundred episodes maybe. Probably. Something like that. Yeah. So you'd have a lot to get through. Uh, it's worth the money for sure. According to the people who, <laughs> uh, okay, so let's just get to it, yeah. shall we? So your girl is back with a classic old Hollywood tale. Good. <laughs> you know me, I love these old Hollywood crimes. And this is the life and tragic death of silent film star Ramon Navarro. Uh, he was one of the top box office stars of the 1920s and early 1930s. This has been a long requested episode. Yes. I think it was even in our our year anniversary poll and I, it might've come in second or pretty close on October 30th. It was the 50th anniversary of his murder. So I thought what better time to take a deep dive. So Ramon Navarro was born Jose Ramon Gil Samaniego in February of 1899 in the Mexican city of Durango. He's from like a hardcore Catholic family, so much so, in fact, that three of his sisters joined the convent and became nuns. Oh, wow. His family moved to Los Angeles to escape the Mexican Revolution in 1913, and he had kind of like a Hollywood pedigree. His cousins, or his second cousins, were Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio and Andrea Palma. When Ramon moved to Hollywood, uh, he was pretty hot. Yeah. We'll post some pictures of him. He was hot. He's a good looking guy. So he's in Hollywood and obviously he's going to make an impression there. He pretty much entered show business the minute his family moved to Hollywood. He started doing bit parts in movies in 1917. He also was sort of uh, supplemented his income by being a singing waiter, which I always find to be like a hilarious old school (laughs) job. Like You don't see too many singing waiters anymore. To be honest... I would never go to a place that had a singing waiter. It sounds, I would be too viscerally cringing for them. Or like, you know, those restaurants where it's like, our waiters are assholes. No. (laughs) Wait, is that a thing? Or you're just, you're just making a joke about waiters? No, no, no. There's like, okay. There was like this one restaurant. I remember I went to, it was the first time I ever got blackout drunk. It was amazing. (laughs) It was, it was when I was like 15 and it was for my friend's, it was for my friend's 15th birthday party and we Wait, went, you were blackout drunk at 15. Yes. Hello. Is that the name of your memoir? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So we went to this restaurant in, in the city in San Francisco and it was like, Oh, this restaurant's really fun. Cause like the waiters are assholes, but on purpose, that's like their shtick. That's like an amazing job. But I remember being so nervous going there cause I'm like 15 and really insecure. 
So you were worried that they'd So I was chugging alcohol actually, on the way there. I thought they were going to be like, you're ugly. Wow. But they actually weren't that. They were just kind of Honestly, sassy. I feel like the uh, pressure to give like big owns would be hard. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's probably a fine line. Like you can't really go too far. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're really going to order that appetizer piggy. Right. <laughs> like like right. you can't really like go too far probably because yeah. you're still working on tips. So where was I? So he was a singing waiter. He's a singing waiter. Right. He sort of befriended this director named Rex Ingram and his wife, who was an actress named Alice Terry. And they really kind of pushed him in a direction. They suggested he change his last name to Novaro. And they really suggested that he sort of rival Rudolph Valentino, who was the huge movie star of the day. Like he could, he could hop on that Latin lover kind of bandwagon thing that was happening. So In 1923, he began to get more and more prominent roles, and he actually starred in one of Rex's movies called Scaramouche. Now, let me say something here. (laughs) Scaramouche, obviously, is a famous lyric (laughs) from from Bohemian Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. In my mind, I was going to skip past this, but I was like, you know what? Fucking Rachel (laughs) is going to say to me, what's a Scaramouche? So I actually did a little investigation to find out what a scaramouche was. Okay. Because I knew you were going to ask me that I question. I actually wasn't. Really? Well, here's why I wasn't. Because I didn't want to bring up the song Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> because it's my least favorite Queen song. And I love Queen. It's just so overplayed. I felt sure. I was like, I was like moving on. I was like, you know what? I better find out what a scaramouche was. There's like a few instances in this thing where I was like, Rachel's going to ask me this question. I, I love it. I, I was love scared. It, I love at this point where we can like kind of sense where like, oh, Desi's going to have something to say about that. So a scaramouche is actually a stock clown character in the Commedia dell'arte. Com- it's Commedia dell'arte, Desi. Whatever. I'm from Florida. I don't have to follow the rules. <laughs> Look, you know, the only reason I know what Commedia dell'arte is is because the one uh, college course I ever stayed the whole way through at Santa Monica College okay. with theater history and oh. they talked about Commedia dell'arte. Okay. That's the only reason I know that I'm very uneducated. Okay. Thank you, Rachel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1925, he had his biggest screen success in the movie Ben Hur, which was remade later, but this was like the original yeah. version. Part of the reason this movie was big was because he is re- wearing like very revealing <laughs> costumes in it. Oh. There's like a lot of images from this movie where he's basically wearing these like loincloth-y, gauzy. Cool. And then some kind of like those leather, you know, where it's just like they're naked under this leather vest or something. Right. <laughs> like those, like, uh, what are they called? Those things, chariots? They're, they're doing the races in those <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Come on. I'm, unge- I'm uneducated too. I'm not gonna let Rachel out uneducate me. Fuck that. <laughs> so this is like an interesting thing. His body is hot in this movie, and he. I found out that he was take. He was like under the service of this woman named Sylvia of Hollywood. Have yeah. you ever heard of her? No. She was like a dietitian to the stars. Oh my like God. she was like a weight loss guru. And I we have. I'm, I'm predicting I will do an episode on her at yeah. some point because she wrote a tell-all book that supposedly slams like every big name from old Hollywood days. Wow. Her thing was like losing weight via massage <laughs> or something crazy like that. Honey, so I wish that like, worked. I know. I was like, sign me up. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so in her in this tell-all book, one thing she says about Ramon is that he slept in a coffin, which was not true. Well, that's really well, goth. But wasn't that... Someone else had slept in a coffin, right? No, they fucked in a coffin. Oh, right. That was like Zsa Zsa Gabor's ex-husband or something, right? Yeah. Okay. 
So I did a little research on Sylvia and saw this stuff. So I feel like we can do an episode on her at some point. So Valentino dies in 1926. And Novara at that point becomes the leading uh, Latin actor. He was still kind of behind John Gilbert, who was like the leading all time. But as a Latin lover type, Ramon was like number one at this point. So he started more like swashbuckling kind of roles he was in. Uh, a movie with Norma Shear. He was in a movie called Across to Singapore with Joan Crawford. He actually makes the transition to talkies. He stars in movies with Greta Garbo, Matahari, and Lupe Velez, called the, a movie called The Laughing Boy. But despite his success, his contract with MGM expires in 1935, and the studio does not renew it. He continues to act in, um, in movies for something called Republic Pictures, which is a Mexican film company. I think that most of these were like weird Mexican religious dramas and a French comedy. So sort of like movies that are not going to be mainstream at yeah. all. Now, part of the possible reasons that his career kind of took a nosedive at this point, despite his popularity, is that Ramon was gay and had been a long time, and that had been a long time problem for Louis B. Mayer, who was constantly trying to set Ramon up in what were called at the time lavender marriages. Despite the fact that he was also conflicted with his homosexuality because of his Catholicism, he always refused to to partake in these uh, fake marriages, which I guess is cool. Um, At the peak of his success in 1920s and the early 1930s, he was earning about $100,000 per film. Wow. So when his career ended, he was still able to maintain a comfortable lifestyle, and he had saved up a ton of money. He had started investing in real estate. He also had several lovers throughout these years, but one of them was his personal secretary, which I feel like is a common role for old Hollywood. Like they would always kind of hire their their gay lover to be their personal secretary or assistant so, so they, they could, could be, be around together. and whatever. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't weird if they lived together or right. whatever. So he had this personal secretary, a man named Louis Samuel, and he had a famous a home designed for him, which ended up being a very famous home. I'm going to get a little bit into it. Uh, this home was called, is called the, the Ramon Samuel, or no, no, the Navarro Samuel House, and it was designed by Lloyd Wright, who was the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. And this this has like a huge history. This movie, it's like it's very famous. The house, yeah, it's in L.A. It's in Los Feliz. It has um, it has like this Mayan look to it mm-hmm. and it's it's sort of famous because it has this like turquoise which is like oxidized copper yeah I like love tiles that. that sort of outline the front of the house a lot of celebrities have lived in this home he had it designed but after he sells it i think in 1938 or something leonard bernstein lives there jerome robbins betty comden and adolf green uh, most famously, probably Diane Keaton, who bought the house at some point, and she actually renovates the home, and it was like something that sent architectural purists into like a frenzy. That's they sending were, like, me into a frenzy right now. Yeah, they were fucking furious with it. I don't, I don't know exactly what she did, but um, I think she had a history at that point of like buying these old homes and fixing them up. It was like her little, you know, side projects. Uh, at some point, Christina Ricci bought it. And I think she sold it for like $4.1 million. I mean, it's like, it's a nice looking house, obviously. So anyways, that's just a bit of history about that house. You can look it up online. There's tons of curbed LA articles on it. Like every time it sells, there's like tons of pictures of the interior. So he, he buys this home for, um, Lewis 
At some point, he finds out that Lewis is embezzling money from him. Oh, my God. So they break up. <laughs> yeah. And he takes the fucking house back. So he eventually moves out of the house in 1938, and he purchases a new home in Laurel Canyon. Now, there are persistent rumors that he would keep large sums of money at his house because of what had happened with Lewis. So by the time the 60s rolls around, Ramon is really a mess. Uh, He had always had a drinking pot problem, but his alcoholism really goes next level at this point. His movie roles, like I had said before, were long gone. He was sort of doing occasional guest spots on TV shows like Bonanza and Wild Wild West. Mm -hmm. He had lost his license at this point because he had tons of DUIs. In fact, he once had received two DUIs in two days. Wow. And he was on unemployment. Yeah. So beyond like the fact that he was not getting movie roles, he no longer had his looks really either because he's a severe alcoholic. Right. At this point, he is 198 pounds and he's only five foot six inches tall. So that's so pretty. So he wasn't his movie star physique anymore. No, he was not long. He was no longer going to Sylvia of Hollywood. <laughs> getting those massages i would love to read that book because i'm sure it's like massages and amphetamines amphetamines. (laughs) come on let's be honest uh so he also had at this point advanced emphysema and arthritis so he's like not physically well and i guess at this point he's in his 60s so i mean he's older according to one of his biographers a man named andre suarez most likely because of alcohol abuse, Navarro aged rather rapidly. Also, Navarro seriously considered becoming a monk. All evidence seems to point out that he very much missed the good old days of fame and riches. He did strive to come back a few times, but without any luck. So he's kind of like, I don't know. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Right. Like, he's like an aging movie star with probably very limited savings at this point. But he still had some cash on hand from his heyday, and Ramon got into the habit at this point of hiring masseuses, a.k.a. escorts. Right. <laughs> he had a personal secretary at the time named Edward Weber, who was helping him write his memoirs as well. I don't think this guy was his lover. Like, I didn't see any evidence. I think it was kind of like a fan right. who probably worked for very little money or maybe none at all, but maybe was going to get a percentage of the book or something. Yeah. Edward Weber, his, like, duties included... And in, in, in addition to writing the book, he also made arrangements for these massages. That was like sort of his job. I mean, they found like, I guess when, after Ramon was killed, they found hundreds of checks for 20 and $40 and they all had in the memo things like gardening service <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. So he was like getting a lot of massages. Right. Other duties uh, that he had included making alcohol runs. Honestly, I need a personal secretary. <laughs> Please donate to our Patreon. <laughs> Uh, so on Wednesday, October 30th, Weber had the day off, but he happened to stop by a liquor store near Novaro's house. The owner of that liquor store told him that Novaro had just placed a delivery order for cigarettes, one carton of Winston's and one carton of Marlboro's. Weber actually took the cigarettes and dropped them off to Navarro because he was like, what's going on? Because Navarro actually did not smoke at this time. When Weber showed up at the Laurel Canyon house around 5.30 p.m., his boss opened the door and he was wearing like a robe and he seemed really surprised that Weber was there with the delivery. Weber thought he could smell no, uh, lotion on Navarro. <laughs> I guess it was like a scented oh. lotion. And he had a freshly trimmed mustache and goatee. 
Weber was not invited in, and he later testified, I had a feeling that he had guests. Well, Ramon did have guests. Those guests were two brothers named Paul Ferguson and Tommy Ferguson. Paul was 22 years old and Tommy was 17 years old. Okay, so the Ferguson brothers... Tommy actually had arrived in Los Angeles about nine days earlier on October 21st. Uh, He was sent to live with his brother Paul by their grandmother. He had recently escaped from a reform school in Illinois where he was living with his mom. Uh, He was there for beating up an older man and robbing him. Oh, my God. So he's like a troubled kid. So he goes to live with his brother Paul. They pretty much have not like any relationship. They're one of, I think, 12 kids. So they just like, they don't even really know each other because Paul had left the family when he was like 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a weird family. I'm going to get into it, I guess. So Tommy shows up to live with his brother, Paul, and his wife of three months, Mary and Gardena. How much older is the brother again? Five years. Okay. So he's in his 20s. He's 22. Okay. So as I mentioned a bit earlier, the Ferguson brothers had a very dysfunctional childhood. They moved around a lot. They had a dad named Lucky. Oh. Uh, So Lucky kind of went wherever he got work. He was a steeplejack, which was, it's kind of like you climb up these things and paint and repair like telephone poles and like transmitters and stuff like that. He also had like a he was like a daredevil, which to me is like a dangerous shithead. He did things like one time he jumped off a high bridge while he was holding Paul, who was a toddler at the time. What? Yeah. It's kind of like, I love that he's like a daredevil. It's like, no, that's a fucking asshole. Like, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, they had 10 kids together. The mom's name is Lorraine. In an interview, Paul talks about his dad. He said that his dad was a good guy when he was sober. He was a womanizer and he'd rather drink than buy groceries or pay rent. He was a regular piece of hillbilly shit. (laughs) I like that he's a good guy when he's sober. Right. I mean, he's never sober, but you know. Right. I've heard things. (laughs) A real piece of hillbilly shit. Love it. So Lucky would disappear for weeks at a time. And Lorraine was just basically left at home with kids and zero money. Yeah. When he was 10, his father hit Paul and Paul left home and hitchhiked to his grandmother's house in Florida. Lucky eventually dies of spinal meningitis when Paul is 12. And at 14, Paul like basically officially leaves his grandmother's and is out on his own. At 15, he joins the army. He lied about his age wow. and like got in, but he was honorably discharged a year later. So he's like on his own from a very young age. Yeah. As I said before, Tommy and Paul were not close, but they had a similar wild streak uh, amongst them. And they also had both dropped out of school, but were really, really smart. Both of them are like exceptionally smart and have high IQs. As I mentioned before, Tommy had been in a juvenile or a reform school. He had been in and out of several juvenile detention centers and mental institutions. And he had once run away at the age of 15. So these kids are like feral right? Right. (laughs) Uh, Paul said in an interview that Tommy was actually even smarter than him. He was real smart, probably smarter than me, but it was like he devoted that intelligence to fucking shit up. He also mentions here that his brother was a bedwetter. I don't know. It's kind of a subtle, like he's smart, but he also fucking wet the bed. (laughs) I don't know if that was supposed to be like, he's smart and he did that uh, for some reason to get it. I I don't know why he brought it up, but you know what? I'm just here reporting the facts. (laughs) not my job. (laughs) So Tommy's in Los Angeles now sleeping on his brother's couch. 
his wife, Mary, of three months, is not fucking thrilled to have a 17-year-old delinquent sleeping on her sofa. Paul says that his brother's a nice guy and smart, but definitely like a weird guy. He describes him as going from light to dark when you look at him. He could look like Boris Karloff in a minute, and other times he'd look handsome. What? Which I object to, obviously, because I don't think Boris Karloff is not un- is unattractive. <laughs> Like, I don't get going from Boris Karloff to handsome. Boris Karloff is handsome. I think you tweeted about that recently. (laughs) I did. That's why I object. (laughs) That's a bad description. So eventually Mary is like, your brother needs to fucking get out of the house. Right. right? This is Paul's third marriage. He's 22 years old. Yeah. When he was 16, he married a 42-year-old woman. Stop it. Yeah. At 19, he got married again, and that ended in divorce shortly after. And then he marries Mary. He met Mary through uh, her brother, a man named Lori, uh, sorry, Larry Ortega. Now, Larry worked for an infamous Hollywood pimp named Mr. Richard. Oh. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> when I was initially reading about this, it said arranger, Mr. Richard. And I was like, well, who's Mr. Richard? And I looked him up because I thought when I heard arranger, I thought it was a like a musical. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was like, right. I was looking up like famous arranger, like musicals, Music lyricist, like whatever composer, and nothing was coming up. And then I put it. I was like, oh, he was like arranging hookups. Yeah, like, I'm an idiot. Sometimes Mr. I'm super naive, Mr. Dick, and Mr. Richard, who I also feel like we can do an episode on cool. because he's like a Scotty Bowers, but right. like a more official version of that. He also. One, the one thing I read was called Flirting with Lavender Lane. It was a book about Mr. Richard and like that period of gay mm-hmm. Hollywood. Um, he apparently worked at something or had something called the Bisexual Lounge, which I thought of you. And I was Aww. like, oh, Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Aww. could go there. <laughs> I wish it still existed. <laughs> so Larry also kind of tried to be an arranger. Yeah. So he kind of set up hustlers on the side as well. And he, he kind of was approaching Paul about doing jobs for him too, at some point they had actually been friends before he got married to his sister. And Mm -hmm. that's how he met Mary. Like the brother was like, Hey, you, you'd get a, you'd love my sister. And they hit it off and got married. So Paul had actually, uh, been hustling since he was a kid. What? Yep. How old? He, he started, when he was 10 years old, he claims because he was the oldest child that his dad was such a loser. He kind of took that on to help support the family. Wow. He said, I was selling myself to feed my family while my dad was out doing radio towers. When I was 10 years old, I would sell myself to a local pervert to get meat, beans, and bread to take home. Paul hadn't really considered doing hustling when he moved to LA, but at some point I think he was a house guest living with someone and then he started doing sexual favors for them. Mm -hmm. So he kind of saw it like, oh, well, you're just there. You're their house guest. It just happens. It's not like a paid thing. Do you know what I mean? Like he kind of started excusing or finding ways to excuse what he was doing as it not really being hustling. Right. Uh, But sex was involved in those situations. But he kind of is like, no, we were really friends, though. It was just like an afterthought, like that stuff would happen. Yeah. So uh, he also had posed for nudes at some point for a physique photographer named Chuck Renslow, who who had remembered Paul 
like after all of the shit went down, saying that he was gorgeous and his butt was beautiful. Well, he was a kid too, <laughs> wasn't he? Doing yeah, this? he was very young. Ugh. So he also had appeared in a couple of porn films. Okay. So I mean, he's he has some history. Uh, just before Tommy arrives, Paul actually gets laid off and is broke. So on October 29th, Mary and Paul get into a huge argument, and this detail killed me. I think it was about, about really about Tommy, but what started it was they got into a fight about a can of evaporated milk. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I couldn't find more info was on she it. she trying to make a cake or something? And you know I, like, researched. I was like, well, what was that? <laughs> Were they trying to make match seven-layer bars? Right. <laughs> That's what I want to know. And Tommy, like, drank it or something? Like, what the fuck happened? So Mary, they kind of split up like yeah. in a whatever, you know, like a fight sort of way. Uh, and Paul and Tommy are just like in the apartment now alone. And Paul is like, you know what, Tommy, like you need to get on your own feet, get the fuck out of my apartment. Right. I need to fix things with my wife. So he is like, you need to <laughs> start hustling to and make some cash. money. There's gay people who will like let you live with them. <laughs> If you fool around with them. Right. So he's like, he's kind of turning him onto this world of being a house guest, basically. So Paul calls a man named Victor Nichols, who is a real estate developer with ties to the hustling world. (laughs) Natural match. And he talks to him like, hey, I need to unload my brother. Who you got? Victor's a real people person. Yeah. So he... He, you know, Victor's like, so is your brother good looking? Paul's like, yeah, he's great. They, this guy gives uh, Paul Ramon's number. So Paul calls Ramon and talks to him about Tommy and Ramon's like, come over. Right. So Paul's like, you know, let's go. We're going to go meet this guy. You're going to have some drinks and one of us will have to go to bed with him probably. Right. So they hitchhike from Gardena to West Hollywood where one of Paul's friends with benefits lives who kind of drives him to these hustling jobs. So they go to this house and then this guy drives them to Ramon's house in Laurel Canyon around 4.30 p.m. Navarro opens the door and he's wearing a blue and red, he's wearing a blue and red silk robe and he invites them inside. Paul starts drinking vodka. Tommy drinks beer and tequila. Navarro reads Paul's palms and tells him he has a long lifeline. They play the piano. Um, Paul plays chopsticks and attempts to play (laughs) Swanee River. Sorry, this whole thing. Navarro apparently cooks them up some chicken gizzards. Oh my God. Uh, I told you before they order the cigarettes from the liquor store and Navarro starts really going on and on about Paul saying he's like a Hollywood star. Uh, he could be a young Burke, Burt Lancaster, a, a young Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. He actually goes so far as to call one of his publicity friends wow. and say, you have to meet, you know, this guy, Paul, he's really hot. Well, that sounds like a Coke conversation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're like, whatever. They're fucked They're up. loaded. Yeah. So, and that is actually the last person who speaks to Ramon alive. I mean, outside of the brothers. What, so that's his the last. Publicist. A publicist friend. Okay. I don't know if it's his publicist. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. Okay, so the next day, October 31st, Weber, the guy I mentioned earlier, the personal secretary, shows up to to Ramon's house for work at 8.30 a.m., When he enters the home, it's in a complete state of disarray. Chairs are overturned. There's a pair of glasses crushed on the living room carpet. Liquor bottles are like everywhere. He searches the nine-room house, and he doesn't see anything out of the ordinary outside of the initial uh, room or the living room. He goes into the bedroom, and the curtains are closed with no light. He draws the curtains, and it's then that he makes out the figure of Novaro, who is nude and lying on the back of his bed, his face severely beaten. Scrawled on a mirror in the room with brown makeup pencil, and this is written in all caps, us girls are better than faggots. And that is spelled F-A-G-I-T-S, by the way. The name Larry is written in ink on a blue bedsheet next to the body. Scratches are carved into Ramon's neck. So obviously Weber immediately phones the police, and, and within minutes, investigators, reporters... And everything is showing up to this home. A newspaper photographer finds a pile of bloody clothes in an ivy bed on the other side of the iron fence outside mm-hmm. of the, the house. So the preliminary coroner's report, which is issued a day later, reads, blood 
noted smeared on floor and bedroom on ceiling and tooth noted lying on floor at foot of bed. Decedent's hands were tied behind his back with brown electric cord. A white condom was found in Decedent's right hand. An electric cord extended down and was tied around Decedent's ankles. Lacerations and ecchymosis were noted on face and head. The next day, I mean, this is like a big news story, obviously. So headlines are like Ramon Navarro slain on the coast, silent film star brutally murdered, beaten to death. Um, The police announced that the murder weapon had been found and was a silver-tipped cane. The final autopsy report revealed that his Navarro's blood alcohol level was 0.23. Wow. So he is fucking... He's gone. He had a fractured nose, and there was bruising on his chest, neck, left arm, knees, and penis. The cause of death was determined to be suffocation. He had basically choked on his own blood. He had multiple traumatic injuries on his face, his neck, his nose, and his mouth. Okay. So, uh, we've talked about the book Hollywood Babylon before. Right. And this case is in the book. Right. One of the more famous details about this murder that's in Hollywood Babylon is the assertion that the murder weapon used to kill Ramon was a lead dildo that was cast from Valentino's dick. Right. Did you hear that? I have. That is like the sordid detail. And that he, he choked on his own blood, but they said that he had that in his mouth and that's why he choked. He choked on this dildo. Right. Like that's sort of the Kenneth Anger, (laughs) like sordid Hollywood Babylon's detail. That's not true at all. Right. I think I tweeted something this week where I clicked on an article that said death by dildo (laughs) because other people print that story as if it's true like these like whatever low-level blog type things you know the brothers after this they were drunk too (laughs) like so they're just basically went home according to paul i just kept thinking what am i gonna do and there was no answer it was a lost week it was just empty i would put a pot pie in the oven and it would be there two days before i realized it was still in uh they left their home in gardena and went to bell gardens where they were staying with another friend We walked and walked. Tommy would question me, and I'd tell him to shut up. There was no reason or rhyme. It was just being lost. There was no direction to go. There was no place to go. What could I do? There was nothing to do. It was over with. So they're just, like, wandering around. No one fucking knows these guys exist, like, associated with Ramon at this point. And for people who don't live in the area, Gardena is far away from West Hollywood. Yeah. It's a drive. Yeah. The police immediately start question, questioning male prostitutes. And at this point, Paul's, inter, Paul's name starts coming up in interviews. In particularly, they're like talking to Lori Ortega, the brother-in-law, because of the name Larry being written on the sheet. And I guess right. he's a well-known escort or hustler or whatever. I guess the West Hollywood police probably have all these guys' <laughs> names you know, on record yeah. for like solicitation or right. whatever. There's, there's some record of these people, but the other piece of information is they have phone records from Ramon's house. Police traced a 48 minute call to a 19 year old girl named Brenda Lee Metcalf who lived in Chicago and was made at 8:20 PM on the night of oh. October 30th. So obviously they contact contact Chicago police and the police interview her and she is the girlfriend of Tommy Ferguson <laughs> from Illinois. Yes. So in her statement, which was taken, like she makes two statements. She makes an initial 
interview with the police and then they take another official statement with uh, Chicago police, like I think a few weeks later. So in that second interview, she says this, he told me that he and his brother were invited to this movie star's house. Then he told me he was working and trying to save enough money so he could send me about $300 so I could come down there and we could get married. I don't know how he got on the subject, but he, Tom told me that his brother knew there was $5,000 behind one of the pictures in the house and that they were going to try and find it. Now, this amount that she mentions was not in her initial statement, and it becomes a point of like contention in the trial that yeah. will be coming up. No fingerprints from the Fergusons were found on any of the picture frames in the house. Metcalf also said, Tom said my brother was upstairs with Ramon and he was trying to find out where the money was. Then I heard a little bit of yelling and Tom said, I have to go before my brother really hurts Ramon. I want to find out what's going on. And that was the end and he hung up. Now, as I mentioned before, both of these brothers kind of had trouble with the law before. So they had records in Chicago. Tommy obviously had a mile-long juvenile rap sheet and Paul had served some time for some minor uh, infraction. So both of their fingerprints were on file yeah. and sent to the Los Angeles police and they were able to match samples taken at the crime scene. Okay. So on November 6th, both of the brothers were arrested at the home they were staying at in Bell Gardens. Now, when they were being interrogated, uh, one of the detectives named Robert Smith, not from the cure, <laughs> asked Paul about his hustling background and I mean, the questions, these are such, it's such retro language. So right. forgive me. The detective says to him, and you bang these fruits, <laughs> you bang these fruits really hard frequently and you stomp them. Paul was like, that's a lie. There's nobody in the world that ever said I stomped a fruit or hit one. And that's the God's truth. He was asked if he used the term faggot derogatorily, derogatorily. And Paul responded, they're no different than anybody else. They're my friends. If I meet one on the street, I don't cross the street. Why does it? Why do I have the feeling that cops still use this language today, though? I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something... I think the word fruit, though, seems... Well, fruit's very old-fashioned. That's very old-fashioned. Right. So, I mean, to his credit, <laughs> Paul is not, like, not denigrating them for being gay, I guess. He's like, just a murdering asshole. He's a murdering asshole. But, but he's, he's not homophobic. He's, he's not a, homophobic. He's not a homophobic murdering asshole. He's just exactly. a murdering asshole. I'm going to give him credit for okay. that. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so he, obviously, he denies having anything to do with a murder initially. He says that he passed out, and when he awoke, Navarro was dead. During Tommy's interrogation, he says that after the phone call with Brenda, he went to the bedroom where Paul had gone to be intimate with Ramon. And Tommy said, Ramon was all hit in the face and all that stuff, you know, and the back of his head was bleeding. And then I took him into the shower, you know, to wash off. Tommy said that Paul told him the next day he died bravely. That's all he wanted out of life was to live and suck a few dicks. What? <laughs> That's, That's what a he quote. said? Holy That's shit. what Tommy said. His brother. I mean, honestly, I was kind of like, well, you know, same. I mean, yeah, we same. all just want to live and suck a few dicks, but like, not at that cost. No, not at that cost. No. no. So yeah, I mean, this wow. is like crazy. If you're not getting the hint yet, these brothers are going to turn on each other oh, <laughs> in yeah. a massive way. So at his arraignment, Paul was ordered uh, to be held on bail with pending pen, pending trial, and Tommy was declared whatever. He was going to be tried as an adult. Yeah. He's not going to be tried as a juvenile. The brothers are charged with murder and they will be tried together. 
The de- deputy district attorney at the time is a man named James Eidemann, and he uh, had this to say. I saw them as tough kids. They were called hustlers at the time. I'm not sure if that word is still used. They were looking to make a buck and possibly have sex with men for money. They wanted to steal or rob if they saw the opportunity. Okay. So the trial starts in the summer of 1969. I think it starts July 28th. I mean, if you know anything about crime, this is a wild summer because yep. just a f- like a few, I don't even think weeks later, when does the Manson and Tate LaBianca, it's like early August. 1969 right? was a truly wild year. Mm-hmm. So this trial's going on during the Manson stuff, basically. Yeah. Which could be why it doesn't really, it didn't get as much attention as maybe it would have. I mean, I think it got attention, but obviously... Well, and Sharon Tate was a much bigger star at that point. Yeah, because she was, at that moment, a big star. Yeah. Uh, As I said before, on July 28th, um, the brothers start their trial for first-degree murder, and they were asking for the death penalty, by the way. (sighs) I mean, this is, like, where it gets kind of ugly. Like, they definitely go after like the gay slut shaming with Ramon and they uh, use his alcohol. The defense does. The defense does. Okay. They use his alcoholism against him as well. The prosecutor attempts to counteract things like that by saying things like Mr. Navarro was a homosexual and probably had been one for many years. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, duh. But he was a discreet homosexual. He did not go into the streets and try to pick people up. The young male prostitutes would come to his home and he was usually careful about who came to his home. Um, over objections from the defense, uh, Metcalf takes the stand, the girlfriend. Right. Now, as I said before, these people are being tried together, but they're completely like against each other. So it's like a weird trial. So she takes a stand and talks about her phone call with Tom. She talks about the $5,000, like amount of money that they were looking for. Supposedly Paul's landlady also gets on the, on the stand. And she claims that Paul said to her at some point, that he was late on his rent, but he was coming into $5,000 pretty soon, which gave the prosecution proof of premeditation. Although there was no documentation of that, it was just the witness's testimony, basically. As I mentioned before, they were completely fucking each each other over. They both testify. Paul testified that he had passed out after drinking too much, and when he woke, Tommy was telling him, this guy's dead. Tommy testified that he walked through the bedroom and had seen Paul and Navarro nude on the bed and that the second time he entered, Navarro was alive but bloodied, and that's when he helped him into the shower. Tommy also testified that when he helped him into the shower, Ramon said to him, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And it was at that point that Paul hurled a pen at his brother on the stand and said, you punk liar, son of a bitch, tell the truth. (laughs) So this trial is like kind of crazy. Drama. At that point, I don't know why this made me laugh. I know it's a horrible crime. I'm sorry. But Tommy, after he gets the pen thrown at him and he's told to tell the truth, Tommy tells something that to me sounds completely untruthful, like in a mega way. He says that Paul dons a vest and bowler hat and waves a cane around dancing vaudeville style covered in blood. (laughs) Jesus Christ. That's grim. I don't believe that that happened. I don't either because I don't think Paul's that clever. Also, if they're drunk, like to the point where they're incapacitated, like maybe after one or two drinks, you would do something like that. Right. Not that I'm defending these guys at all, but I almost feel like Tommy's like, fuck you. I'll do, I'll lie if I want to. I mean, like, that, that seems like the ultimate lie where you like, this guy is so oh, yeah? craven yeah. Yeah, yeah, that he yeah. would do this. So Paul and Tommy's mother, Lorraine, takes the stand as well. 
she hasn't seen her sons in like a really long time. And she hasn't seen Tommy since he was 15. She testifies that Tommy wrote and told her that Navarro deserved to be killed. He was nothing but an old faggot. I'm sorry I'm saying this word so much. I'm just reading (laughs) the testimony. Uh, But she obviously doesn't have the letter. She also speaks to the Los Angeles Times outside of court, the courtroom, and she says to them that her younger son had been in mental institutions twice, in and out of jail, in juvenile halls, and she believes he is capable of violence and that she was deathly afraid of her. And she told the, the paper that Paul hadn't been any trouble. So she's taking sides against Tommy to go with Paul. Her nephew. No, they're both her sons. They're brothers. Oh, right, right, right. I'm sorry. I'm That's sorry. okay. Uh, so... On September 15th, 1969, Eidemann gives his closing arguments. During his closing arguments, he shows the crime scene photos to the jury and says, what kind of monsters would do a thing like this? These two male whores are experienced. They've lived on the streets for years. Why all of a sudden... I'm sorry. Why all of these serious injuries if not to get him to tell where the money was? Navarro was paying a lot of young men for a long time. Neither of the Ferguson brothers will admit striking Navarro even once. I was beginning to wonder if what we were dealing with was a suicide. Perhaps Mr. Navarro wrapped himself in electrical cord and beat himself to death. So Paul's lawyer takes things like one step further as far as like shaming the victim. Mm -hmm. So he closes with back in the days of Valentino, this man who set female hearts aflutter was nothing but a queer. There's no way of calculating how many felonies this man committed over the years for all of his piety. What would have happened that night if Paul had not gotten drunk on Navarro's booze at Navarro's urging and at Navarro's behest? Would this have happened if Navarro had been a, had not been a seducer and a, traducer of young men what's a traducer i have no idea (laughs) so he's basically blaming ramon for what happened to him unbelievable the jury to their credit deliberated for two days and found both of the brothers guilty of first degree murder thank god at the sentencing hearing tommy confessed he kept trying to put his fingers up my rectum i started hitting him i hit him again and he hit the floor he added, he died of a broken nose, and I'm the one who busted it. Eidemann urged the jury to ignore his confession, maintaining that Paul had been the aggressor. Uh, I don't really know it, why it mattered at that point. The brothers were sentenced to life at San Quentin. I mean, this trial inspired a lot of like pop culture at the time. Charles Bukowski uh, wrote a story called The Murder of Ramon Vasquez, and mm-hmm. that's obviously loosely based on this. I mean, there was tons of uh, magazines featuring the crime scene photos. Um, Truman Capote interviewed Paul for a TV special about prisoners on, um, I don't know if it was death row or prisoners in life, prisoners in prison for life. There was some avid fan of Navarro's named Ryan Kelly who dressed as him and purchased Ramon's home, and he claimed that it was haunted by Ramon. This guy was killed in the late 80s by his brother, like, in the house. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And the house has been since demolished. Now, Paul actually thrived in prison. He hosted the prison's radio station and, like, conducted interviews. He also wrote a short story. He got, like, an associate's degree from the College of Marin and started writing. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) He started writing, and in 1975, he won a Penn Award for his short short story, Dream No Dreams. How did he get a degree there if he was in prison? I guess they had some program where you could take classes or something, right? right? I don't know. Uh, He 
because of this sort of success of this story, he started getting the female admirers who were probably like, oh, he's such a sensitive soul. And he got married. A woman actually left her husband for him. Wow. <laughs> it was just next level stupid. They were allowed conjugal visits and they later got married. Tommy kept being Tommy gonna Tommy. He kept trying to escape prison. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, to try to escape San Quentin That's is pretty old. insane. He eventually he was often like relegated to solitary confinement. Uh, Paul was actually let out of prison to work in forestry camp as part of his rehabilitation. Uh, and Tommy was just like hawking, you know, trying to get drugs in prison, like sniffing glue, like doing what he could. Uh, the brothers actually were both paroled after serving seven years, by the way. Wait a minute. Seven years. Yeah. Doesn't that seem insane to you? I tried to find out more because it's like, how do you get life in prison? And then get paroled after seven years, especially if the other guy didn't seem like he was being a model prisoner. Yeah. I mean, that's what I read. I could be wrong, but I looked for more information. There's not a ton of information that out there, by the so way. wild. So, I mean, once Tommy leaves prison, he continues being a fuck up. Yeah. He does. He marries his prison psychiatrist, who is a woman in her 50s. Right. By the way. Wow. Uh, he works in a mental institution. He gets divorced. He has a second wife. That marriage ends in divorce. He keeps calling his mother whenever he's drunk and acts like a maniac. I right. mean, he just continues being kind of scary and a fuck up. On Jan January 18th, 1987, Tommy Ferguson who is described in this Associated Press report as a drifter on parole after a prison term for the slaying of silent film star Ramon Navarro, was sentenced to eight years in prison for raping a 54-year-old Chico woman. Wow. So he goes to prison for that, and he is paroled once again in 1990. In 1991, he gets more charges for public intoxication, petty theft, failing to appear in court. He also serves time for failure to register as a sex offender, and he moves to Palm Springs at some point. So he is in Palm Springs. He is still, he's calling his sister now and being a fucking jerk to her. On March 6, 2005, Tommy commits suicide. He goes to a Motel 6, cuts his throat, doesn't leave a letter, nothing. Wow. And he, uh, his sister actually has to come and identify the body. After his release from San Quentin, like I said, Paul kind of has a little bit of a better run of luck. He marries and has a son. He becomes a successful entrepreneur. No he, way. He does things like owns a restaurant. He owns a rodeo, a nightclub, a racetrack. He releases an autobiographical collection of short stories called No More War Stuff About God Anymore, which is published in 2009. He also follows in his father's footsteps and does some steeplejack work for a while, but Paul is currently serving a 60-year-old sentence for a 1989 rape and sodomy charge. So he also gets out of prison and fucks up again and is now back in prison. He claims that the prosecutor in his case, in his case has framed him. So by he's the way. still serving? He's in prison right now. But he it was for an old It was uh, for an old that charge he, that he was no i i think he went back to prison in 1989 because you remember if they got released after 
in 60 after seven years it was the 70s when they were paroled so he's out for a bit doing all this stuff okay. and then in 1999 he goes back to prison 89 or 90. i'm 89 sorry okay he goes back to prison for this rape okay there's an interview i read with him he basically admits to committing the murder at this point okay he talks about the events of that day at ramon navarro's house so according to him I'm drinking and listening to him talk about the movies. I'm going, wow, this guy can tell some pretty good stories, but I'm getting drunk. The next thing I knew, I find myself being overwhelmed by his body. And just like that, hairiness, and I guess being kissed or whatever the fuck it was, I come out of that and I go, get the fuck, and boom, I walked out. So that's what happened. So of murder, I was innocent. Of manslaughter, I wasn't innocent. Even of manslaughter, maybe you could say I was innocent, but I was guilty of hitting him. I did hit him, but it was in a drunken stupor. But wasn't he hit like a bunch of times? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't like a self-defense blow. No, it wasn't like a one-time thing. Right. He also says that the cane, that the police cane yeah. was the instrument of his death, was manufactured evidence, and he never even saw the cane, cane until it was exhibited at trial. Except that there's pictures of I his know. face. He also claims that the condom they found in Ramon's hand was also planted by detectives. He's like OJ, like he's OJing the shit out of this. <clears throat> so he says there was no murder weapon. So he claims that like, I'm a boxer. So when I hit you, you're going to die, you know, especially if I hit you three or four times, he's like, I remember standing beside this man and coming out of this heaven, heavy drunken fog and hitting him and seeing him fall on the bed. But I didn't do anything more than that. Mr. Navarro died because he was so drunk that the blood in his throat, the involuntary muscle in his throat didn't work because of the alcohol suppressed it. If he had turned his head, if he had been a little more sober, he would not have died. That's the God's truth of Tommy's involvement. Paul says, basically nothing. He was supposed to be staying there, but he was on the phone to his girlfriend and he heard me hit Navarro. Next thing, I was sitting on the couch and I went back in the front room. I poured a drink and sat down on the couch and I dozed off and he came in there and said, you got to come with me. And I went in there and he pointed at Navarro and said, the guy's dead. <clears throat> Mr. Navarro was lying on the floor. We picked him up. We put him on the bed and then we got the brilliant idea. Let's make it look like a robbery. I was telling my lawyer and mother what happened, and they said, you can't say that because you'll get the gas chamber. So that's when they had the idea to frame Tommy or, like, muddy the truth by claiming that Tommy was the one who did it. Because I guess they thought because he was 22 that he would suffer more consequences than the 17-year-old. Right. I mean, it's still a fucked up thing to do. So he claims that he's come to peace with what he did to Mr. Navarro. How could you Because come it to was peace? not intentional, according to him. It was an accident. <sighs> I mean, I don't believe this guy for a fucking second. So he basically goes on to say that he's not responsible. He doesn't have any regrets and he doesn't know what his role played in his brother's suicide. But I have to wonder about that. So he's almost like he feels more regretted about his brother's suicide than he does about the initial murder. As I said before, this has been in the media some. I mentioned the Charles Bukowski story. It was also um, in a Peggy Lee song called Tango. There, it's talked about in Joan Didion's book, The White Album, which is a really great essay collection. It's mentioned on an episode of The Sopranos. And there was a show in 2015 called Aquarius. Uh, yeah. And I think it was on an episode of that because obviously that takes place around the Manson time. So this trial would have been another big news story. That's, that's that. <laughs> oh, it's such a tragic story. <laughs> It's really sad. It's really sad. It's like... <sighs> I mean, to me, what hap seems what happened is they're drunk. Whatever happened, 
escalated. Yeah. And then these two idiots kept making things work. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe he would have survived if you guys had called 911. Right. And right. not left him or to choke on his over. Uh, yeah, like least. something. Like, it's possible he wouldn't have choked. It's like to blame him for being too drunk to not choke on his own blood. After you hit him a bunch yeah, of I times. Yeah, I mean, that's not how. That's not how murder charges work. Right. I (laughs) mean, this guy was found fucked up, too. Like, they fucked up. I mean, and he was tied up, too. Yeah. So I don't know if the tied up was done to make it look like a robbery after the fact. Like, he doesn't really clarify, and no one can really know, like, what exactly happened. Also, like, I mentioned the $5,000. Those brothers did leave the house with $20. Like, that's all they took. In the end, like they got twenty dollars from this guy. Not that I, not that there's any evidence that robbery was the initial motive. Right. Like I do think that I they mean, went there thinking. Obviously, it just feels like this whole thing was they were beating him up, asking him where the money was. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was sort of the story discussed in Hollywood Babylon. Right. That he's basically tied up and beaten, kind of like like Wonderland, right? Right. Like right. they tied him up to get information about where the money is, right. that it's a robbery and the guy doesn't have any money. Yeah. So there's nothing he can give them or say to stop the beating, but yeah. they don't believe him. So they keep going. Right. I thought the interesting thing was like, when I was initially reading this thing with Paul, where he's like writing books and stuff, I was like, oh, so he, he changes his right. life. And, no. and I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> no, he rapes and sodomizes someone. And he basically admits to the murder and has no guilt. It's like, I thought he had this like, this like charming story like one brother fucks up still and the other one kind of makes something of and his makes life. amends for yeah it but the whole way. thing is a fucking mess like there's no there's I mean, no good part to it there definitely seems to be some kind of narcissism or sociopathy there if he's writing this book being like i don't have any regrets about it like no regrets you have no regrets how do you not regret that <laughs> I, I mean, even if you, <laughs> even if it was an accident. Also, so long, it's so long ago at this point. Couldn't you say, like, you know what? I was an alcoholic. Like, right. I was drunk. I, you know what I mean? Like, you can kind of separate yourself from responsibility in that way, maybe, but take responsibility still. Like, but it's not who I am now, kind of thing. I don't know. I think he sucks. He sucks. And I think he's a liar. He is very good looking. I'll really? post him. Wait, Paul I mean, like, Ferguson? Yeah, in that kind of old... Like, you can see why he was successful... At being a... At escort. being a hustler. And that why Ramon was like, oh, this guy... I mean, he's, like, good-looking. Right. Rachel's looking him up. I'm looking at... Whoa. Yeah, he looks like uh, Kanicki. Yeah! He, in the he trial looks like Kanicki, yeah. No, exactly. He has that look. Like, he's a good-looking guy. Right. For sure. Ugh, what a tragic story. It just, like... it. This is one of those stories that just, like bums me out so much right and just like the shame like the fact that they were shaming him in the trial is just so gross to me it's so disgusting and it's just a sad end i mean he's just like living out his final days you know yeah he's just trying to get some dick (laughs) like he's an aging hollywood star he's just trying to get some dick right and he had done it a ton of times before right and nothing happened and he just got these two fucking sociopaths come over right uh so yeah it's pretty sad well desi thank you for telling that story you're welcome (laughs) do we have anything else to report i think we want to promote the book giveaway again we sent out the one to um our last winner right so we have one this time 
we're getting a lot of reviews. We'd love to get to a thousand star, like five star reviews. Yeah. So if you feel like clicking five stars, go ahead. You don't even have to write a review. You don't have to, but if you want to, if you want the book, if you, you want the book, write, write a, a cool review and we'll pick out our favorite, uh, pretty soon, I think yeah. in a week or two. Yeah. So you have like some more time, go write a review or click five stars. You could join our Facebook group if you right. want Hollywood crime scene, friends, social media, all of, all of that. So yeah. Cool. That's that. All right. Thank you. Bye.